And please turn in your Bibles, first of all, to the book of Proverbs, the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 3. I just want to read verses 3 and 4 of Proverbs chapter 3 before turning to our sermon text in Paul's letter to Titus in the New Testament, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 1. Proverbs 3, 3 and 4, followed by Titus chapter 1, verse 7, through 2, verse 1. A father says to his son, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Now we turn to Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, nor not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our minds now to receive this good doctrine of your word, 
I pray that you will help me as I open the word to this people and that you would give us receptive ears, not because it is my word, for it's not, but because it is your word and we desire with all our hearts to know your will for us better. We humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at the credentials of a man who, was, who is qualified to shepherd the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that before anything else, before we entertain any other consideration, the man who serves as ruling elder or preaches as pastor must be a man of proven Christian character. Maybe you wrote it in the margin of your Bibles. Character first. Character first. Twice, Paul says the elder must be above reproach. Now we should understand what this means and what it doesn't. It cannot mean that these men are without natural faults. If it meant look for men without natural faults, then the church simply would be without shepherds. The starting place for church office is that these men take their natural faults, their very real sins and shortcomings, they take them to Jesus Christ for full pardon, in the forgiveness granted, in the substantial healing of those faults, in the subsequent daily growth toward full maturity, these men become strong in grace. And this strength, this supernatural strength, takes on some familiar forms. He won't be steeped any longer in the sins of other men who know not Christ. He becomes in Christ a forgiven man, a pardoned man, a man of singular heaven-born hospitality and goodness and sensibility and justice and devotion and self-control. He'll come over the course of time to look and behave in all of these respects more like his Redeemer. And if this man, this redeemed man, turns to Jesus Christ for that pardon and grows as I have just been describing, then his wife can then look to him realistically and therefore affectionately and submissively look to him, her husband, as the ambassador of Christ in their home. His children have before them every day a living interactive example of what it is to repent, what it is to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer, 
of men and families and nations. This is how we ought to understand the term above reproach. And any demand on the part of a congregation that their pastor or elders be unfallen specimens of self-generating moral perfection, it isn't only unfair, it's silly to expect that of your elders, your pastor, it's silly. It's completely unrealistic and it sets in motion the wheels of conflict and turmoil in the congregation where peace should reign. In Jesus Christ, we accept one another. We rest our hope of perfection, not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus alone. So, Christian character first. Then secondly, as we see today, doctrine. Beginning, especially here at verse 9, we need to take a step back and consider the situation in Crete where Titus had the responsibility to appoint these elders in every city, in every congregation of every city. Now, you are familiar, perhaps, with the concept of national character. National character. It's obviously a generalization that's made, sometimes unconsciously, that associates certain moral and ethical traits with a particular ethnic heritage. And I don't want to perpetuate any stereotypes here. I don't want to suggest that they're necessarily true. But let me just offer some modern illustrations of what I'm talking about when I mention national character. The expression, to get one's Irish up, means or suggests a quick temper. A Mexican standoff suggests stubborn irreconcilability. To balkanize is to fracture and divide a larger body into its little component pieces. What it means is to balkanize, it means that people can't get along among themselves. They fracture. Or let's return for a moment to the world of 2,000 years ago. The expression to Corinthianize meant to engage in sexual immorality. It's the unfortunate reputation that literally came with the territory of living in the city of Corinth in the first century A.D., Well, within the Roman Empire, the Cretans, too, on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, the Cretans, too, among whom Titus went about planting churches, they had a distinct ethnic character, a reputation. The Cretan poet Epimenides wrote of that character some six centuries earlier, six centuries before Paul was writing this letter. 
Epimenides, who wrote this, remember, was a Cretan himself. And Paul is simply quoting him here in verse 12. And whatever may be said about the truthfulness or not of those other modern illustrations I've just given you, the great problem that was facing Titus, who was stationed there in Crete, the problem is that their national reputation from the pen of Epimenides, their own prophet, and then from the pen of the Apostle Paul as well, their reputation was largely accurate. It's an observable national flaw, as Paul confirms here at the beginning of verse 13, that the people of Crete were, both by nature and by nurture, liars, snakes, deceivers, It was an ethos that was ingrained into their culture, into their national identity. So just as to Corinthianize means something highly uncomplimentary about your sexual standards, to Cretanize meant something equally uncomplimentary about your standards of truthfulness. Now this is a terrible thing to say, isn't it? And yes, of course, it would be a terrible thing to say if Christianity were about flattering people who are still dead in their sins. But the fact is, whether in Crete or here or anywhere, sin stinks. Wherever you find it, sin Stinks. How can we pretend the stink in the room doesn't exist when it's there? This is Paul's understanding, and he communicates it to Titus. After we were married and I moved into Mary Lou's home, I was trying to sell my own house out towards Seguin, and I realized... Only then, actually, I realized that I had a problem with mice. So I set several mouse traps and soon discovered a rather unpleasant thing. Bear in mind, I wasn't living in that house anymore, but I set traps there. And I discovered that when you don't visit the vacant house more than once or twice a week, dead mice decompose in a way that announces itself when you first step through the front door. And the smell of their little rodent corpses rotting in the traps isn't something that you want prospective buyers to be hit with when they tour the place. Sin stinks. And Paul wouldn't be doing Titus any favors if he said, Look, Titus, these Cretans that you're stationed among, among whom you're working, these Cretans are a great people They're a wise and considerate people. They are just noble savages. Just waiting to have someone bring them the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to tip them over the threshold into the kingdom of heaven. No, he's telling the truth. 
He's telling the truth. He's saying, look, Titus, I understand you've got a tough audience there. You're working there, you're trying to find elder material in a culture that doesn't have any elder material to offer. Their own prophet, a Cretan himself, says they're a disgusting people. So you're going to have to find and select and develop and appoint men as elders out of a population of liars and snakes and overfed gold bricks. Let me suggest to you, friends, as we face the process of finding and calling our own pastor, that we who live in postmodern America have no more promising a pond than Titus had in which to go fishing for men. And when we find the man described in verses 6 through 9, the man we call to serve as our next pastor, I hope you will cherish him. Cherish him as a trophy of God's electing and sanctifying grace. One of the surest and clearest testimonies of God's holy love for the church. Because here is a man who lives and ministers above reproach. In a culture that positively revels in its own reproach. Revels in its own repulsiveness and disgrace. He's a man who's come out of them to be holy. He's come out of a culture that smells of dead mice. Yet he carries within him and upon him the fragrant aroma of Christ. Within this rotting culture These men you're looking for, Titus, are men holding firmly the faithful word according to the doctrine that he may be able both to encourage in the sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. Christian character's essential, as we've seen, as I've emphasized, but Christian character isn't enough. In the business world, it's sometimes said personal charm is good for the first 15 minutes. After that, you need to know something. And in the army, it's not enough that a soldier look good in uniform, that he know his facing movements and how to march and so on. That's not enough. He's periodically tested on the individual and collective skills that are needed to win battles. And let me suggest to you that your pastor, your elders, your teachers are engaged in a battle for the mind. A battle for the mind. Yes, certainly it's for the heart as well. Certainly it's for the soul, the entire person. But if we don't treat Christianity as the discrete, definite corpus of propositional doctrine that it is, not only faith, but the faith, 
once for all handed down to the saints, if we don't understand Christianity that way, then our approaches to Christian missions, to evangelism, will tend to become more romantic, less rational, more man-centered, less God-centered, more affective, less effective for the tearing down of intellectual strongholds. The emotions that are stirred up by slick entertainment and audience manipulation within the church all tend to vanish once the music and the drama ends and people go home. And our people, Christ's people, will then have to face their major life decisions and their cancers and their strokes and their financial difficulties and their marriage difficulties and their prodigal children and their growing old and their deathbeds. They'll have to face these situations with little more to sustain them than the memory of feelings that they once had when they felt better. The place to begin fortifying our people is in their heads, their intellects, so that in their very worst moments and on their very worst day, they can say with absolute certainty, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. I know that whatever Satan, the father of lies, may insinuate or declare to the contrary, God has spoken And he's revealed everything I need to know concerning himself and the duty that he requires of me. Maybe I'll feel good about it, or maybe I won't. But that's not important. What is important is whether what I believe is in accordance with sound doctrine that's carefully gleaned from the Bible. That lasts when the feelings evaporate. If this need for intellectual certainty concerning the gospel held true at any time in history, it was never more so than during the apostolic age, during that first generation following the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. We are prone to think, I think, uh, we're prone to think that the first Christian the first century Christian church really had it all together. That in the beginning, everyone followed the apostolic doctrine and everything was crystal clear theologically. Everything was crystal clear across the church. And we don't necessarily realize how fluid and how humanly speaking, how vulnerable Christian doctrine was even during the apostolic age. 
If the battle for the mind is raging now, and it is, how much more so then? Now this may come as a surprise, but the New Testament itself bears witness to its own birth pangs. If you read the New Testament carefully, you'll discover the early controversies, at least some of the early controversies, out of which sprang Christian orthodoxy. Nothing worthwhile ever came easily. The first major controversy that the church faced, it was along the lines of uh, how might Gentiles be admitted to the church? Gentiles. Are all men saved the same way? You see, it's not a problem pragmatically for Jews to embrace the new covenant because Jesus is so very clearly the son of David that God promised every week in the synagogue readings of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. So clear were the facts and implications of the gospel to the Jews that Jesus could actually chide those two men on the road to Emmaus, chide them as foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. It should have been clear to them because they were Jews. Jewish Christians are simply fulfilling their obvious calling and destiny as the seed of believing Abraham. But now... We've got all these Gentiles swelling the ranks of believers in the Jewish Messiah. And these people, some of them are ignorant, uncircumcised barbarians with no hereditary claim upon our Jewish Messiah. Some of these people have never set foot in a synagogue before. They have no knowledge of, they have no particular reverence for our ancestral Jewish traditions. They're uncircumcised. They eat whatever they like. They're still dealing with their scandalous sexual mores and all the other filthy residue of their former life of idolatry. Even these people, these sinners, are by the gospel being drawn to the ascended and reigning Jesus Christ. So what are we going to do with them? Do we just swing wide the gates of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone? Or shouldn't we expect something more of them? Shouldn't we expect them, for instance, to come into Christianity by means of Judaism as a first stop? And that means circumcision, the first stop along the way to becoming a Christian. That, friends, that was the first great controversy that threatened to split the church. The very first ecumenical council Church council in Acts chapter 15, in fact, was called to answer that very question. And much of the New Testament was written to answer it. Not only in Crete, but across the whole empire, 
the growing church faced the problem of men who were insubordinate to the Lord's apostles. Empty talkers and deceivers who were ready to take personal advantage of the church's early vulnerabilities. On the one hand, there are these unprincipled men and women who simply see Christianity as an opportunity for advancing their own fame, advancing their own fortunes at the expense of others. These people quickly disappeared, of course, once the empire began its persecution of Christians. But as long as Christianity enjoyed the legal protections that Rome offered under the umbrella of Judaism, there was never a shortage of false brethren who were ready to swoop in and fill a pulpit or write a book or make some waves and make a buck. Think, for instance, of the generosity, the play-acting generosity of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. It all looked so noble, didn't it? It looked noble until you discover what lies beneath. Or three chapters later, again in the book of Acts, the plans of Simon Magus to buy the power to confer the Holy Spirit. Presumably so that he could in turn franchise the heavenly gift to others for a fee. Remember the warning. Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders gathered in Miletus in Acts chapter 20. His warning that savage wolves would arise even among their own number. Even among these gathered elders, savage wolves would arise, not sparing the flock all for the sake of their own dishonest gain. Think of Paul's remark to the Philippians. Some preach Christ even out of envy and spite, thinking to cause me grief in my imprisonment. And remember Diotrephes, in the third letter of John, Diotrephes, that unworthy office holder who loved to be first, who wouldn't put up with apostolic doctrine in the church. People come into the church swelling her ranks, sometimes with the strangest and most contemptible of motives, and with them come their own ideas of how things ought to be. If you want the closest thing that the New Testament offers to a catalog of theological errors, a catalog of heresies, then read the first and second epistles of John. The elders have to contend against docetism, that doctrine that Christ didn't actually come in the flesh, but only seemed to be there as if he were a phantom or a ghost. That's docetism. They had to contend against perfectionism, against Unitarianism, and against all these other earthbound ideologies and isms that by their sheer number threaten to tip the scales of Christianity forever. Unless 
the church's elders hold firmly the faithful word according to the doctrine. And of course, the doctrinal battles don't end with the close of the apostolic age, do they? It was going to take nearly 500 years for the church even to hammer out her Christology along clearly apostolic lines. What exactly are, to, are we to believe, in other words, about the person and work of Christ Jesus? What are we to believe? And all along the church's narrow way were theological perils and pitfalls on both sides. On the one side, there were always the Judaizers, those who were always ready to cut off the free grace of God with the knife of legalism. On the other side are all these sin-accommodating mystery cults, always ready to put the Christian's faith in its little intellectual compartment, so that the flesh could be free to run wild. Opportunism, docetism, perfectionism, Unitarianism, Judaizers, syncretistic mystery cults, they lived then, they live today, and many more besides. And then, as now, we fight the battle for the mind by careful, steady, persevering, relentless, spirit-led attention to sound apostolic doctrine. Only the hard work of solid study can raise Christian orthodoxy above the quagmire of mere human opinion. Only the hard work of solid study can defend it against the insubordinate, the empty talkers, and deceivers. This battle for the mind goes forward and it succeeds when men of Christian character, first and above all, hold firmly to the faithful word according to the doctrine. We must hold firmly to the faithful word according to the doctrine. This means that our pastor has to be a steady, tenacious student of the scripture before he ever becomes a teacher of it. There is no such thing in the repertoire of a faithful pastor. There is no such, such thing as a sermon that is slapped together on a Saturday night. It means that human commentators may help inform his message, but they won't be the message. Our pastor, our elders, must do their own work. He holds firmly to the faithful word, immersing himself in it day after day because it's his very life. And he knows with dreadful certainty that he can't offer you anything that he hasn't first received himself. He must, first and above all, hold firmly to the faithful word according to the doctrine. 
Then secondly, he must be discerning as to the application of biblical doctrine. It's got to be discerning as to the application of biblical doctrine. Some of you in this audience, some of you only need to be encouraged. Parakalein is the word like the paraclete. We only need to be encouraged in our ongoing study and growth. And the good pastor knows this about his congregation and can say to some in his congregation, as Paul did to the Thessalonians, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. That's encouragement. But if the pastoral office consisted only of this kind of encouragement, wouldn't we all want to be pastors? What a wonderful life to see all God's children walking in the truth. To see every little morsel of apostolic teaching gobbled down by these eager minds that are motivated and energized only to please God. How beautiful. How sweet. But how unusual. Because it's very likely that our pastor is going to spend far more intellectual and emotional energy combating those who contradict sound doctrine. It takes far more time and generally yields far less personal reward. Look again at the context of Titus' mission. Not a few, but many. Many are the insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers on the island of Crete. Many. Especially those of the circumcision, he says. So in light of the prevailing culture of shame, in light of the gospel's perennial opposition and the havoc it wreaks on Christian families and congregations, and in light of his own commission, what is this tenacious student of Christian doctrine, your pastor, your elder, what is he to do? The formal aspect of his work is summed up in the single Greek word that's translated here, refute, in verse 9, and reprove, in verse 13. It's the work of clear, rational, step-by-step Christian apologetics, and its aim is to silence the opposition. Maybe you'll win them over, or maybe you won't. That's the working of the Holy Spirit who regenerates whomever the Father gives him. But your pastor, by sound doctrine that is carefully applied, can silence them. The word means muzzle them. They need to be muzzled for the safety and well-being of the flock. Your pastor can, he should, he must. 
The less formal aspect of his doctrinal work is directed in chapter 2, verse 1. Yes, certainly there's going to be the formal contending for the faith. These things are necessary and our pastor has to be prepared for the contest. And incidentally, so should we. We need to be prepared for that contest. We ought to be prepared to offer reproof and refutation, along with our readiness to give an answer for the hope that is within us. But here in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul uses a different word. It's not a forensic debate-style word, like refute is, or reproof. This is a familiar everyday kind of word that Paul uses here in verse 1. It's not reproof, not refute. He says, speak. Or even less formally, say or talk the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Chat about them. Pass the time of day talking about them. There ought to be agreement, there ought to be congruency between what your pastor declares from the pulpit and what he says to his wife and children and friends as they're sitting together at a soccer game or waiting in line at the movies or driving along in the car. If the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to win the battle for the mind, then we have to realize that sound doctrine isn't just a Sunday morning game. The pastor has to live it, has to walk it, has to talk the things fitting for it. And so, dear friends, do you. The battle for the mind, after all, is our battle. Ours together. And we fight it in many small words and ways. God, give us the grace to speak powerful things in common, everyday places and situations so that even out of the mouth of babes, infants, nursing children, he might establish strength to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Amen.